HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. This is Sherry Bayer from All in the Industry. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And today we're going to be talking about elegant dining cars of the railway system. Not just any elegant dining car, but the dining cars of the Trans-Siberian Railway. Now, I think when most of us call up an image of a, of a dining car, especially the elegant dining cars... And at least for me, I think of like the Orient Express or or some of those wonderful movies that we um, you know that we the old movies of, of dining cars and the and the service and the people all dressed up. Sadly, most of those railways have gone away. They've been replaced by Amtrak and and transoceanic uh, air travel. But there's one that does still exist, and that is the Trans Siberian Railroad. In fact. The year 2016 will mark the 100th anniversary of the completion of this railway. It's the longest train ride in the world, traveling almost 6,000 miles, crossing two continents and connecting Moscow with Vladivostok, its major port on the Pacific Ocean. And just the engineering feat alone was unbelievable. The, the, The lakes, the rivers, the Ural Mountains... Um, the vast, vast territory it had to cover. And someone who knows it quite well and spent time there is my guest today, I'm happy to say, and that's Sharon Hudgens. Sharon is an award-winning food and travel writer and has been a university professor and is a speaker on international tours like National Geographic Expeditions, Lindblad Expeditions, Silver Sea Cruises. She has been a featured speaker at many conferences, including the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery, where she was also awarded an international prize for her research on the foodways of Buryat Mongolians. 
She's a seasoned traveler, needless to say, after all that, and has lived in 10 countries and has journeyed through more than 50 countries around the globe. Sharon spent time, uh, quite a bit of time actually, in Siberia, which we'll hear about shortly. Uh, she's an avid trail, a rail rider, sorry, and she has logged nearly 40,000 miles on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. She's the author of The Other Side of Russia, A Slice of Life in Siberia and the Russian Far East. Sharon, it was a, a mouthful. I'm sorry. I had so much. I wanted to tell everything about you because I, I think it really does set up the topic. But welcome. I'm, uh, Sharon's joining us by phone from Texas. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you for having me on your show, Linda. Welcome to you, too. <laughs> um, you recently presented a paper at a conference in France on the history of railway catering, and you titled it, or it was titled, From Caviar to Mystery Meat, The History of Dining on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Uh, I, the, the title alone makes me smile because <laughs> I've, I've, of course, done a little research for this, but... Um, <laughs> Well, I, obviously, you traveled on this railway, but what made you delve into its history? Well, it's because I've been interested in railroads for so long, actually. Uh, when I was a child, my father worked on the railroad, and I grew up riding trains all over the United States. And later on, when I was an adult, I just because I love train travel, I rode trains all over Europe and Japan, too. So I was really thrilled in the early 1990s when my husband and I had a chance to go out to Siberia and the Russian Far East to teach for the University of Maryland's programs at uh, two Russian universities there. And to get from one university to the other, from Vladivostok on the Pacific Ocean coast uh, to Irkutsk, which was 2,500 miles into the interior of Siberia, we had to ride for three days on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. And I'd always wanted to do that. I thought that was going to be, you know, the, the railway trip of a lifetime. And uh, this was in January of 1994 when we actually had the chance to ride on the train. And that was in the depths of the Siberian winter. It was, it was a train ride like being in scenes from Dr. Zhivago. Mm. And you can imagine, I mean, it was absolutely beautiful. And so it was exciting to me because I'd already had such an interest in railroads anyway and ridden them all over the world. And now this was kind of like your final great trip on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. But, you know, and I thought that was going to be it. And then a couple of weeks later, we were on the train again to get to a conference in another Siberian city. And we ended up riding on the Trans-Siberian so much that I began to call it our commuter train out there in <laughs> Russia. <laughs> well, and it really was that, as yeah. it is for, for so, many, so many Russians. And as you mentioned in the introduction, I later wrote a book about my experiences there on many different angles of experiences. And one chapter was on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, so I delved deeper into the history of it. Right. Um, and you... then later on, when I did work for National Geographic Expeditions as their lecturer on Trans-Siberian tours, I had a chance to travel five times all the way across the country, 6,000-mile trip. Uh, from Vladivostok to Moscow. Now, tell, so, excuse me. Tell, you know, I've but, eaten more than 250 meals on the train or in the station buffets or from the little ladies who sell food on the platforms. So how could you not be interested right. <laughs> if you're somebody who's done that so much? Okay, now you just covered a lot of material. We're going to have to back up there a little bit. Um, <laughs> okay. First of all, you said, okay, you traveled three or four days one time, and then another time you took a longer trip. If one were to travel from beginning to end, how many days does it take? If you, if you got what's called an express train, which stops only at the major cities, 
it would take today six to seven days, six, six and a half to seven days. So indeed, one has to eat a lot of meals during that a- time. Absolutely. Right? And when when the railroad first started, it took 14 to 16 days to go all the way across Russia. So Ooh. that's even more meals, yeah. of course. Well, before we talk about some of these meals, and I really, because that's what my focus is obviously today, mm-hmm. I think it... Um, it's only right that we talk a little bit about the construction and the, you know, the history of the railway itself. Because, as I mentioned earlier, what an engineering feat to to build this railway. Yes, it, it really was. It was the greatest engineering feat of its time. It took 25 years. And even though it sounds like it's a great engineering feat, which it was, there were a lot of problems during the construction of it. Uh, you know, corruption, shoddy materials, uh, unskilled workers. A lot of times the, the railroad, the bridges collapsed or the trains went off the rails. So it took a long time, 25 years, to build the whole thing. But uh, during that time, they had parts of the track that were running, and so people could make a three-day or four-day journey or whatever, and, of course, they had to eat on on the train at that time. Um, They started with having station buffets, restaurants in the railroad stations, at the major railroad stations. But in between, people either had to carry food on their own or buy food from the uh, local vendors on the platforms because there weren't dining car services on the trains for the first four or five years of of railroad service. Now, uh, some of the descriptions I read, um, in fact, in in a paper that you – the paper that you presented that you wrote – a couple in the early days, some of these, these station restaurants were quite elegant. Oh, absolutely. It's amazing to read some of the descriptions of them because you can't imagine now having had railroad station buffets like this back in the 1890s with, uh, you know, big, beautiful dining tables with white linen tablecloths and napkins, potted plants, crystal chandeliers, waiters in evening dress with white ties and all this kind of stuff. Um, some of the travelers who've written about it uh, in English have, you know, who went to Russia were were really amazed to see a railroad station buffet like that. But I have to say that that was not typical. Mm. Uh, you know, you, you might eat in a place like that once or twice. Well, you said in the but, major major cities in the, in major, the major cities, stations, exactly. Right? Yeah. So they, I, I've seen I've seen drawings of what some of these buffets were like, and they look kind of like a madhouse cafeteria, you know, <laughs> from around 1900. Uh, some of the the reality versus the kind of showpiece that they had at some of these places. Well, in fact, that was uh, the popular popularization of um, of buffets, was it not? Uh, the popularization of what? Buffets. Of buffets, yes, yes, that was. That was part of it. All of the Russians had a tradition, a Zakuski tradition, right. of eating uh, before the before the main meal a lot of different little uh, food items on the table and different vodkas and things like that. So, you know, for the Russians, that wasn't such an unusual thing. It would be kind of like a Scandinavian smorgasbord or something like that. Right. Yeah, Zakuski, I mean, we... I, I... First of all, I just love the word zakuski, <laughs> but a, a wonderful appetizing section that, or, or just you know, when having someone over for dinner and they have all this food arrayed, you know, oh, on yes, the table. Yes, and people people make the mistake of eating all that, thinking that's the meal, and then they sit down <laughs> to the main dish <laughs> or the soup, and then the main dish and dessert. So, so when yes. so when did a dining car first appear? That hasn't been, to my knowledge, completely documented because. There were cars where people might sell something, you know, go through the train and sell something, little vendors and things like that. But around 1900, for sure we know, 
that the Russian government contracted with the Belgian Wagon Lee Company to make elegant uh, dining cars and, and elegant sleeping cars on these long-distance trains. And at the Paris Exposition in 1900, um, they actually had some of these cars on display. And so they had, I think it was two of the sleeping cars and a smoking lounge and things like that, and then two or three dining cars also on display. And what they were was the regular train cars set up on railroad tracks in the pavilion, Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the most popular pavilions, by the way, at the Paris Exposition. And what was neat was in the dining cars, they served meals so that people who were visiting the exposition could actually you know, not only walk through the dining cars and exhibit, but actually sit down and have a meal there. And then to make it look like you were actually traveling on the train, that the train was moving, uh, they commissioned two painters who did sets for the Paris Opera, and they painted this huge panoramic scroll. It was, it was like 25 feet high. And it was really long, and it would it had scenes that you would see outside the window if you were traveling on the Trans-Siberian. And so this was scrolling past the windows outside of the dining car, which made it look like the train was moving. So it was really a, a clever way to advertise train travel because the Russians were trying to um, entice uh, foreign travelers to come and, and cross Russia on these on these trains. The trouble was that as happens a lot in Russia, there's the propaganda and then there's reality. They had a couple of trains that had these nice facilities and these nice dining cars um, that were provided by the Belgian company uh, as a franchise. And then uh, the Russian government itself, the Tsarist government, had a couple of so-called international trains that, that traveled the whole nearly 6,000-mile route which were also of higher standard, but most of the Russian trains, which went just from, you know, one city to another, a thousand miles apart or a hundred miles apart, were just, were standard trains. Many of them did not have dining cars at all. Right. So, well, so the, there were different classes, there were different categories of trains, let's say, and if you, if you were on one of the international trains, you might have a dining car that served, uh, that was very elegant, again, you know, a white tablecloth service kind of place, that had uh, caviar and champagne and fresh fish and oysters and steaks and just, you know, very nice food for the time. And then if you were, um, you know, a Russian who was traveling third class on a standard train, there wouldn't necessarily be a dining car at all. And if there were, you couldn't afford it. So you brought your own food or you bought from platform vendors and things like that. Of course, the train was also... um, very important because it did connect Moscow with that port city. Oh, absolutely, um, Vladivostok. So it was there. Must have, I mean, you say there were several different trains and train lines, but there were, weren't there some branches also that were built. Yes, there? yes, of course. And actually, it, it is one train line. It used to be a single track between Moscow and Vladivostok. Now, by now, and, and from the 1930s on, the whole thing has been double tracked. But there wasn't a single train called the Trans Siberian Express. A whole lot of people think that there was this one great legendary train. It's actually the route that is legendary. Uh, and there were many trains on those, on those tracks, and none of them in Russian had the term the Trans-Siberian Express. So there were different ones that, that some trains went all the way between Moscow and Vladivostok. 
other trains only went from Moscow to Irkutsk or from Irkutsk to Ulan-Ude or something like that. So different portions of the line. It was a whole railroad system, and as you mentioned, with branch lines eventually going off it, too, to other places in Siberia. Right. So, okay, turn of the century, um, mm-hmm. soon after we have the appearance of the dining cars, and, and as you say, on certain, on certain lines, on certain mm-hmm. trains. Mm-hmm. Um, who was traveling and how much, I mean, who, who was able to afford the ticket to go to the dining cars? If, if you were on one of the, uh, the expensive trains, let's call it, one of the international trains, um, it would be foreign tourists, for instance, because, after all, this was even back then the railway journey of a lifetime. So there were a lot of travelers, and that's why there's so much literature in English written around, and, and not only English, but in, in German and in French, too, written around the time of, say, 1900 to up to World War One. Uh, of people who just wanted to make this great journey because it was the longest railway journey in in the world. So foreign tourists could afford to be on those trains. You also had wealthy merchants, uh, Russian and international merchants, that traveled on that train. And then on the standard trains, you had, say, families going out to visit their relatives who'd moved to Siberia. Um, The Russians really developed the train system for a couple of reasons, one of which was military, which was to get soldiers from the European side of Russia out to the Russian Far East to protect Russian interests in that area, Um, and also to move convicts out there because Siberia was a place of of prison and exile. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, which most people don't realize, is to promote settlement of Siberia from European Russians. So whole families would move out there using the Trans-Siberian Railroad to get out there, and they, had, they, would, they would essentially go out in cattle cars. And cattle cars were designed to hold four families with all their household goods or 40 horses, whichever you needed the cattle car for. Huh. And that's how people moved out there. So none of those people, of course, were eating on dining cars. Sure, I think the, right. the real point of the Trans-Siberian Railroad was and the reason it was used by so many people and the reason the Russians promoted travel on it, too, was that was the only way you could get all the way across Russia. I mean, there, were, there, were no, there was no road all the way across Siberia, and there hasn't been until recently. Yeah. And so, and there were no, back then, at 1900, there was no airplane travel across Russia, which is what a lot of people used later. So the Trans-Siberian Railroad route was really the way to get all the way across country, whether you were visiting relatives or moving out there or you were soldiers or you were merchants on business. Well, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the... You know, Dr. Shivago, because everybody, you know, of course, remembers the the movie, and <laughs> of course, if not the novel, um, and um, and the scene with you know the railroad. Although that was not, I don't believe that was the Trans Siberian, but it, mm-hmm. I don't know right. which which You're one correct. it was, right? Uh-huh. Um, but wonderful images, and uh, and certainly, you spoke about. Um, people in between meals or in between the stations before the dining cars or if you couldn't afford the dining mm-hmm. cars that there you could buy from vendors. I want to talk a little bit more about those vendors when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. listening to Write It Down by The Landing, 
And this is A Taste of the Past on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with Sharon Hudgens, um, a food and travel writer, and we're talking about the Trans-Siberian Railroad. And Sharon, you had, um, before the break, we had, I mentioned that we wanted to talk about the vendors on the stations. That You know, the station stops, I don't know if people can... They have to kind of close their eyes and realize that station stops were in really highly anticipated, right? Because- <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. For a number of reasons. It's a long train ride if you want right. to get out and stretch your legs. But the other reason is because at every station there were platform vendors who were local people, uh, even under the Soviets, this small amount of, of private enterprise was allowed. Local people could come to the train station and sell at, uh, food products, mostly homemade. So at each station, you would see generally it's the elderly women uh, who brought the food to the train station, either in baby carriages or in um, on sleds in the winter. And so they would have cheese, butter, bread, fresh bread, uh, milk, sour cream, beer, all that kind of thing for sale. But the really good stuff was, besides the homemade bread, were the other homemade foods like uh, roast chickens, smoked sausages, uh, little fried meat pies, sauerkraut salads, home pickled cucumbers and tomatoes, boiled eggs, uh, potatoes garnished with mushrooms. I mean, you name it. Homemade gingerbread cookies and jams, and then things like fresh fruits and berries and sunflower seeds and pine nuts. And that's what most people did, was they got off the train and they bought from the platform vendors, or some, you could even stay on the train and open your window, and the platform vendors you know, would come up to the train and just sell you food through, through the windows. What was neat about that, and I really like that. I've done that a whole lot, buying from the platform vendors. And it's a cheaper way to eat, you get better food, and you get to taste the regional differences. So, That's right. And, it's, yeah. and, and what's surprising, you and I um, spoke the other day about this, because um, I, too, had a, an opportunity to travel, not the Trans-Siberian uh, Rail Line, but another um, from Moscow to Kiev Railway. And that practice was also um, evident there. And that was in 1966. Mm-hmm. And, they, I mean, the, the little old ladies with the babushkas were coming up to the, the, the train windows. And, you know, we were a bunch of students. We didn't know. We weren't quite sure what to do, you know, and get food. And they would come right up to the train window with their buckets, a bucket where they'd be uh-huh. stuffed full of, <laughs> well, stuffed full of, of bread and pastries that we weren't sure whether they were sweet or savory, we found out uh-huh. after we bought them. And tea, the marvelous tea. And they would serve the tea in glasses in the silver cups, just like, yes. you know, was yes. the practice, elegant practice, and then collect them afterwards. It was, it was really quite an amazing experience. And that, so that practice persisted up until, as you say, when you were writing in the 90s, right? Oh, absolutely. And it still does. So it started back in the 1890s, 
and it was still it's it's still practiced today. The difference is that since the year two thousand, the railroads, uh, the Russian government's invested a lot of money in upgrading the railroads. They they deteriorated a lot in the nineteen nineties. And so what they did, and even before that, in the Soviet system, a lot of the train stations got really run down. So they started upgrading the station buffets. They painted the train stations, spruced them up, really restored them to their former glory. And also they started licensing the platform vendors more. And in some places, especially the bigger stations now, you have people that actually work for companies who go along the train station with these big push carts, and they've got all kind of packaged foods and imported foods. (laughs) And it's just not the same as it was back when when you and I rode the train. Um, And many, many stories that have been written about the platform vendors of the past. Because the neat thing back then was you had regional differences in the foods that were sold by these vendors. So you might have salmon caviar from the Pacific Ocean coast, smoked fish in Lake Baikal from Lake Baikal in the interior. Over in the Tatar Republic of Russia, you would have little fried meat pies that are their specialty. So people who rode the train a lot, Russians who used it for riding the train for their own purposes, for for uh, for work and for uh, for travel and to visit family and all that, they knew the different regional specialties and they knew what to buy when you got to that place along that that uh, multi-day trip. So that that was nice, and I kind of hate to see the demise of that now. It still happens at smaller stations, but not so much at the larger. Right. I mean, a, truly an education of, of, as you say, regional foods. And then, of course, people who would settle in the different areas throughout the the train ride. I mean, I'm sure they took this as an opportunity to earn some money. And oh, they would And they would cook their food. So, I mean, it's interesting because the food would travel along with the train, right? That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, just to give the listeners a, a little idea about, you know, the, the length of time that this, you know, journey was with the train from the time the trains were built, they... They actually came to a halt um, during World War One, and, and certainly the Bolshevik Revolution. I would mm-hmm. imagine, right? Um, so you talked about deterioration in 1990. Uh, there must have been some some deterioration during that period as well. Well, absolutely. World War One, and then the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, and then the Civil War in Russia that lasted between the Bolsheviks and and the Tsarist forces for four years after that, up until 1922. So all of that really disrupted train service, as did World War II also. So um, the the trains were used mainly for military and industrial purposes when they revived the railroads after this time. And um, under the Soviets, uh, dining cars just didn't have priority. I mean, they had them. But food service didn't have a priority. So right. that's when all of this declined and when when Russian train travel really got sort of a bad reputation among people in terms of being, well, you know, the food isn't very good. You can get good stuff from the platform vendors, but forget the dining cars. That's you, where the term mystery meat comes from. <laughs> that's that's what I wanted to talk about. Um, so you, you, you know, mentioned all the, the delectable goodies that were sold and served in the station restaurants and then certainly in the beginning in the dining cars. But then there came the time of the mystery meat and and you um you really related a couple of interesting stories in your paper about the size of the kitchen and the staff and what was being served um as well as what might have been being sold so maybe you could talk (laughs) about that a little bit sure the dining cars on soviet trains held 48 people 
And the dining car itself had a small kitchen at the end of the dining car. They didn't have a separate kitchen car. So there was usually only a staff of three. There'd be a waitress, there'd be a cook, and then there'd be a younger boy who would say a busboy and dishwasher combination. And even though the menus on these dining cars, again, this is the Soviet era and up through the 1990s, too, the menu on these, menus on these dining cars might run to 10 pages long, and you look like, wow, what a great selection of food. And then they only had two or three items on the whole menu that were actually ever available. Uh, part of that was, again, propaganda versus reality, let's call it, uh, or image versus reality. But the other side of it was that the, the dining cars would be supplied with, with a certain amount of food, and then at the different stops along the route, the dining car staff would sell off a lot of that food and make money for themselves, sell it off to local people who met the train to buy food from the dining car. And this, I, I don't mean cooked food. I mean food supplies. Yeah, no, material. I mean, this this was probably their only way of getting food. I mean, the markets were bare. They're, as you say, during the Soviet era, they were having a hard time, you know, provisioning foods mm-hmm. from anywhere. Mm-hmm. So this was for this people. A rolling food source. Yeah, a good source of food for them. A little black market activity going on there. but Sure. I saw the same thing happen in the mid-1990s when I rode on the train. The dining mm. car filled up at one station, way out in, in a remote area of Siberia, but it filled up with people who came in to buy food supplies from the kitchen there. Wow. And so, <laughs> so that accounts for, again, part of the reason that what was going on for the customers in the dining cars themselves, you know, riding on the train, was, uh, you know, not as nice as it had been back in the Belle Epoque era, era around uh, 1900 when they had some dining cars that, you know, looked like the Orient Express. And now what you do have, there are four private railway companies that operate luxury trains in Russia, charter trains, private trains for tourists. And they have gone back to having dining cars of that same quality that you had back in, around 1900, the early 1900s, prior to World War I. Right, right. And so that's a very different aspect of dining. Now, if you, if you want to go on one of these tours that's run by National Geographic Expeditions or Smithsonian Journeys or several other organizations, you would be riding on a private special luxury train and having a very good dining experience indeed. Right. You mentioned that you, um, when you were working for National Geographic Expeditions, you rode the Golden Eagle, and you spoke on that. Was that is that the train that you were? Yes, that is that of of the four companies that run trains, private companies that run trains in in Russia on the Trans Siberian route. Um, the uh, the Golden Eagle, which is a, a British owned or British Russian uh, cooperative, uh, you know, uh, enterprise. Um, the Golden Eagle is by far the most luxurious. And, uh, yes, they have, they have a separate, uh, very professional, separate kitchen car, and then a dining car attached to that on, uh, on either end of the, of the kitchen car. And I have been in the kitchen car many times. I've interviewed the chefs. I know them well. Um, and the food is really interesting. They do a lot of Russian specialties. They have fine wines from all over the world. The meals are three- or four-course meals, and you have a choice of, of two items in each course, one of which will be vegetarian. They offer vegetarian options. They never – it's a 12-day trip to go from between Moscow and Vladivostok, and they never serve the same meal twice. Wow. Except the breakfast buffet will have some of the same items right. on it, but right. lunch and dinner don't. So it is, and and the actual decor of the dining cars is um, 
back to the Orient Express level. So they're absolutely beautiful places to eat, and people people love these trips. I mean, I've as I say, I've been on five of them, and uh, you know, people are still raving about that trip as as the train trip of a lifetime. Right. Well, it's like going to a luxury resort that keeps moving. Right. Yes, that's, absolutely. That's yes, and, and, and you've scenery. got the whole expanse of Russia outside your windows. I mean, it's just fascinating to watch the changes. And you know, that's one point that I think really needs to be made to people who are thinking of taking a trip like this, whether a luxury train or on a standard train. So many travel riders have said that it's just one boring expanse all the way across that 5,771 miles. And, you know, I don't think they've ever made the trip if they say something like that, because mm. the, the, what you're seeing outside the dining car window or outside your sleeping car window, the terrain changes so much. I mean, there are there are there are very tall mountains that are snow capped. There's uh, there's steps like in Mongolia, Mongolia near Mongolia. There's there's farmland. There's uh, birch forests. It's just a, there's beautiful beautiful wildflowers out in the Russian Far East. It's it's a wonderful um, trip to do for the scenery and for the food. Right. It's a shame that um, that rail travel. Um is not what it used to be in this country. Um, yeah. Certainly, I mean, you have, can take the out in the um, uh, northwest. You can take the the um, Canadian railway system that goes uh-huh. out to um, British Columbia and Banff and Lake Louise, and that I've heard fabulous things about that. Uh-huh. Um, and unfortunately, our our great trains. You and I were sharing thoughts and talks about the super chief and the wonderful <laughs> trains that used to travel America with the observatory cars, looking at the planes and the different. Uh, terrain no longer is that, that experience is no longer um, to be had, and it's nice that there are trains that we can take. And the Trans Siberian certainly sounds like an experience of a lifetime. And uh, the mystery meat, of course, if you read a lot, as you say, there's so much literature. And I was reading some of the other literature about the food, and every, every time I would read about the mystery meat, it would be this this chunk of brown meat in a <laughs> floating in a, a in greasy a sludge <laughs> right. <laughs> right well i'm glad that that has changed and yes, uh, it and, has. and certainly <laughs> a lot has changed along with it um but it's it's wonderful that um that they have revived the train travel and what a history what what a history and 100 years since that was started and still going strong well I thank you for sharing your time, and I, I envy your experiences. Because it just <laughs> well, thank must you for inviting <laughs> me today. I enjoyed it. It must have been wonderful, and, uh, and now you've inspired me to pick up your book and, and take a look at it. Um, thank and, you. And that was published, what, when was that, The Other Side that of was, Russia? That was published uh, by Texas A&M University Press in uh, 2003 in hardback, and now it's been reissued twice uh, in paperback. Oh, terrific. So it's Uh, available on Amazon.com. The Other Slice of Russia, A Slice of Life in Siberia and the Russian Far East. And the Trans-Siberian Railway, I've read a lot about it in preparation for this, but now I want to read even more. So that chapter in your book about it will be um, totally intriguing to me. And Sharon, again, thank you very much for, for joining me, and thank you for listening, everyone. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.